Good day. It is Wednesday, the 29th of September. This is Free City Radio. It is 11 a.m. and you are listening to CKUT 90.3 FM. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. We broadcast every Wednesday here on People Powered Radio, um, bringing you interviews that explore the intersections of movements for social justice uh, with a particular focus on the arts, but also looking beyond that. Today, I wanted to share a conversation with you that I had last week with Garrett Blood, uh, who is the political director of Faith Indiana. And I wanted to talk with Garrett because he's been really involved um, in some important conversations in the U.S. uh, surrounding the uh, relationship between uh, political movements and social activism with electoral politics. Right now, Garrett works with Faith Indiana, which is a broad-based coalition attempting to challenge um, the right-wing both um, state administration, but also uh, the fact that Republican senators are representing Indiana in the United States. Uh, This coalition brings together a lot of community groups who are uh, working on anti-poverty campaigns, LGBTQ organizations, and also environmental justice groups, a variety of uh, activist organizations, including people who are struggling against systemic racism within Indiana. I first heard about Garrett's work um, in relation to the Sunrise Movement, which is a, a climate justice movement in the U.S., and I uh, wanted to have a conversation because I thought that um, the work that Garrett and many others in the U.S. are doing, exploring that space between social movements and electoral politics is interesting. And I want to have an honest conversation to hear where he was coming from in relation to this. Um, and it's part of a series that I'm going to be doing uh, to look at this question of how do social movements intersect or navigate uh, questions of political power and um electoral politics. So that's what's on the program this week on Free City Radio, and I'll just share the interview with you. This is with Garrett Blood from Indiana. Uh, Well, how's it going in Indiana with your current work? I mean, I think, you know, we'd started exchanging about sort of the interface between electoral politics and social movements. Um, Obviously, Indiana is a site of struggle, on various fronts. Um, I'm sure Faith and Indiana is addressing um, uh, various uh, intersections of those struggles. I mean, obviously Indiana was a state that voted uh, in majority for Trump, but I know that that was very contested within urban centers, but also some rural areas. Um, So how are things today and from your vantage point and where things stand from the work that you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, Indiana is my home and I, I really believe in it and love it. That's why I'm, I've committed to doing this work here. And like you said, it is, it is a site, site of struggle, right? There's a real, there's a real contest right now for like, which, which values are going to be able to govern our state and therefore our our country. And, um, Faith in Indiana is organizing the largest multiracial, multi-faith, um, group of people across our state to fight for um, racial, economic, and environmental justice. And we've helped to have 
secured huge victories and largely our urban centers. So in Indianapolis, which is one of the largest cities in the U.S., um, we just a few weeks ago secured $115 million for the nation's leading gun violence prevention strategy, um, as well as mental health treatment for folks who are um, not able to get um, support. And we've helped to you know, cut incarceration rates in half. We expanded mass transit in Indianapolis a few years ago um, with a $1.3 billion expansion of a rapid bus system. Um, here in where I live in South Bend, which is the northern part of the state, um, we've um, helped, we're in the process of building a crisis intervention center for those who are experiencing mental or drug-related crises to reduce our prison population. Um, as well as um, issues on immigration and environmental issues. And um, so we've we've helped to build power and really win at the local level, which we hope will be able to lead to broader um, state level change. Part of the reason why I'm in my new role as our state political director is that we've gotta be really serious now about building state power. Um, Cause while we can have these small wins in, in cities, which are significant, and that's where a majority of people live in our state, um, we know that you know statewide we have a governor that's um, really um, does not care for people of color, poor people um, in our state. We've got senators and Congress people um, who represent us nationally who are holding back progress for our country as a whole. And part of the inspiration for me taking this job, right, is like you know we we saw just this past election how important it is to have um, that to have uh, you know representation that uh, looks like and represents our our states just in Georgia, right? I mean, that was a, a, a decade long project of, of taking Georgia from a very, you know, conservative, um, you know, mostly white led state to like, you know, electing our first black senator from Georgia. And now we have two democratic senators who have made everything possible on the national level here. So if we are able to pass, you know, the largest, this multi-trillion dollar infrastructure bill, which is, got you know climate education bunch of huge initiatives in it that would be the largest investment in um people in to probably since the new deal if that 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 is only going to happen because people worked for a decade in Georgia to elect those two senators right so like i feel a similar drive here in indiana that i do not believe that our current representation actually shares the values of most people in my state and I know that the, the main way we get there is through organizing. We've got to bring people together through issue areas that they care about, show that we can deliver victories and that our political process can work and build a larger and larger um, base of folks so that we can actually turn them out and help change who is representing us, both at the state and the national level. So our vision is that we can help build um, a better state, but also change our country if we can organize and win in the red states. So you made a connection between um, mental health uh, support, um, substance abuse crises uh, taking place in the U.S. and prisons. Uh, there is a lot of analysis within those connections that you made. Mm. Um, there's two fronts there, it seems, that to address those issues, public resources are needed, funding. Um, so legislation needs to be passed. But at a grassroots level, um, the communities who are grappling with these issues are organizing uh, to sound the alarm. Uh, so I would imagine your work um, uh, sort of tries to address that space in between 
both sort of a broader uh, awareness of the need for resources and what that looks like on an administrative level, and then at a more sort of grassroots level in terms of supporting community organizations that are trying to grapple with these questions of, you know, substance abuse, uh, how that relates to mental health, how that relates to economic injustice, how that relates to prisons. So could you expand maybe on that point and and sort of the ways that your work tries to interface with uh, those two uh, spaces politically, which are obviously connected in some ways? Yeah, absolutely. We, you know, we talk about in our, in our work that like people care about issues, right? People come to this work because their, you know, their family has an experience with incarceration or their family has, you know, maybe them or their family members have experienced mental health crises and been incarcerated. Um, so folks come in because they're passionate about issues, right? But they don't often have a sense of the political world. Like what, how do we get change across the aisle? Who's standing in our way? Who are our allies? Like that's often like very new to people when they get into like basic organizing. And so our work is like taking people through that, showing them like what could be possible if we come together that our, we have power in numbers, right? That we build people power together, that we show up in big events, we can hold our elected officials accountable to the values that they do allege to, to be championing. And then we can get things done through that. Like that, that's like basically how we create change, but how that's one avenue, right? And then there's another avenue of change that's who is in these elected offices to begin with? Because <laughs> sometimes we can have victories in places where we have some allies, but some places we're banging our head up against cement wall because they don't believe in the dignity of the people we're working with or the issues that we are um, raising the alarm on. So part of my work is getting folks to see that we've got to engage in the political realm, that if we're not engaging in elections, we're leaving an entire realm of decision-making off the table. Um, and that there's many decisions that are actually made before we go to the ballot box, that there's decisions made intra-party, right? That like the, de like the Democratic Party, for example, has an agenda. It has people who run for offices and those folks are selected sometimes internally. And so if we're not engaging in the party system as well, if we're, if we're saying that our only obligation is to vote on election day, then oftentimes the decisions have already been made for us on who those people are, what issues they're championing. So we wanna make sure that we are supporting those folks who back our agenda, who are gonna champion it and who can co-govern with us so that when they're in office, we can actually do the work of transforming our community together and don't have to exert so much energy um, just to get them to see it as a problem to begin with. Just for people to maybe have a bit of a picture of the magnitude of the crisis of opi opioids and substance abuse uh, um, struggles uh, in Indiana, um, could you talk a bit more about that? I mean, it was talked about here in Canada in the context of the U.S. election, um, but just just briefly, if you could just 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 give us a bit of a picture of, of what's going on and 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 why that's such an important issue, persisting important issue, even if it's not totally in the headlines right now. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's one of the underlying crises in our society that's being really ignored, um, similar to, to climate and many others. Um, yeah, in Indiana, we've got a, um, you know, the opioid crisis has been going on for years. Mostly that's been hitting our, our rural areas really hard. And um, I mean, this looks like people overdosing in their cars with their family inside and dying on the side of the road. You know, we've had, I mean, the scale of the crisis is, is um, 
is really frightening. Um, we're talking about you know hundreds and thousands of people dying um, every year through this kind of um, through overdoses. Um, and you know we are also under discussing the you know it's not just opioids, it's um, you know methamphetamines is I mean we have just as many folks dying of, of meth overdoses um, in our urban centers as folks in in the rural parts. So um, what we what we envision is that like a lot of this happens because there's no resources that uh, in the United States right now, drug, um, addiction is treated as a crime and, and, and prosecuted under laws instead of seen as a, as a, as a, um, a health problem, um, that is worthy of medical treatment. Um, and we just don't have any services for folks who are experiencing these illnesses. So if you're, you know, police officer comes upon someone who's having an overdose, they take them to the jail. Um, and so the jail is the de facto treatment center in many of our and, and this is like the case across the United States, but especially here in Indiana, for most of our uh, folks who are experiencing illness, um, whether that's mental or um, from drugs, um, those folks are taken to the jail <laughs> and, and then are, and then are, you know, oftentimes kept there because they might have, you know, an existing warrant out for a parking ticket or something like that. Right. Um, so if you're, you know, if you're a black person taken into the jail for a drug overdose, you can imagine what the result is, right? That you're probably going to stay there for a while. Um, and that that's going to be a mark on your record. You're going to have trouble getting housing jobs. And, you know, the story keeps getting worse from there. So we want to catch people before that, you know, the intervention center is like catching people when they have problems and getting them to an appropriate treatment center. And that's what we're hoping to build here in our county because it really doesn't exist right now. And it's shocking to like see that because it's like, we haven't even built the kind of basic intervention strategies that we know work, um, largely because the people who are impacted are people who have already been marginalized in our society, poor people, folks of color, and they don't have a political voice. And so that's why the electoral work is so, is so essential, right? It's like getting those folks who are impacted, who have experiences with it to be at the center of our politics so that that voice is being championed in the halls of power. Thank you so much for sharing this, Garrett. I guess um, the last point um, is specifically what you just mentioned that I would like to talk to you about. Um, I think we first corresponded around the election last year. I was trying to reach out to various people of the US election. You know, I mean, in, in a very real sense, I was just really struck by the fact that, you know, in, in key cities that swung states against Trump, uh, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Atlanta, um, um, Phoenix, um, these were all, and, and, and others, but uh, those were all cities, uh, Detroit, of course, where people mobilized uh, to vote against Trump. And it wasn't necessarily to support Biden per se, but it was uh, social movements and activist groups that were mobilizing and really swung the election. I think that that's fair to say. Um, so I guess, you know, we just had the federal election here in Canada and there's, you know, still a lot of debate about that sort of interfacing between social activism and community work and electoral politics. And I think in some ways, because of the, the, the pointed nature of the multi sort of multitude of crises that are happening in the US, I feel like the conversation is a bit different. 
So I'm just wondering if you had any reflections on that point of that interfacing between social activists and electoral politics. How do you feel about it? How does your work speak to that? Um, it's not a simple issue. There's not one answer, but I was just interested to hear your thoughts about it. Yeah, this has been, I think, one of the biggest learnings in my work as um, you know, an organizer, climate justice advocate, um, and political thinker. Um, so for me, the eye-opening moment was when I was at the I was at the Paris climate talks back in 2015 as a part of the American youth delegation. And there we saw the Obama administration. You know, we look back very fondly now of, of Obama. And at the time, we were pretty um, pretty upset at how they were treating that moment. Um, we really had this first global moment to bring the world together, to get on a different path, to limit warming, prevent damage, and help those countries that are going to be impacted to adapt and build, you know, a resilient society. And the Obama administration was really like pulling the arms of small countries, poor countries behind their backs to say like, you can't sue us. Like you can't sue us for the damages that we've done. Um, and we'll give you like, you know, a few million dollars here. <laughs> um, and it just failed to meet the moment. And what I, what, you know, my, my friends and I there realized that we didn't have the political movement that we needed to be able to hold Obama response, like hold him accountable to the, to the really nice words that he said about climate change and his desire to stop it. And it was a really devastating moment. I, you know, I fell out of organizing for a little bit. I was really, really down in the dumps um, around this issue. And it was really the launch of Sunrise back in 2017 that allowed me to feel hope again, because what Sunrise was saying is that we can't ignore the political realm. That actually, that's been one of the biggest failures of the climate movement in the United States is that we spent, you know, pretty much a decade fighting pipelines and power plants and pushing our universities to divest their endowments from the fossil fuel industry. But really, these were small, isolated campaigns that didn't really capture the um, the attention or the the hearts and minds of the American people to imagine what could be possible if we really tackled the crisis. And so, you know, one example is that, you know, Bernie Sanders ran for the presidency in 2016, ignited a lot of us who didn't really see a path through politics towards power and was talking about all of the things that we, you know, he, he was you know, wanting to, you know, um, aggressively ban fracking. He was going to in, invest, you know, trillions of dollars into clean energy, like saying stuff that had never really been said before. And our movement was really nowhere to be found. Like there, if we look back, I'm like, there weren't really organizations, like the environmental movement did not come to Bernie's side to, to rally. Like they were really nowhere to be found. And looking back, I see that as a massive failure uh, of, of imagination of what could have been possible. I think a lot of us like got, uh, disgruntled from like, I think Obama disappointed a lot of people because people did get involved in electoral politics and then felt um, kind of abandoned by him in the political realm that he wasn't actually fighting in all of the ways he could to, to enact policy change. And so I think people like got off, took their foot off the political lever for a while, right? <laughs> like kind of like between, you know, Obama getting elected and, and Bernie running, like there was no effort to engage in the political realm pretty much at all from environmental or climate organizations. And I think Bernie awakened a lot of people, saw what was possible. And, you know, what Sunrise said is that we are committed to making sure that people understand 
that electoral politics is just one other tool of change, that we can, we can rally in huge numbers across the world. I mean, you know, what Greta, you know, the, the strikes are great. And we also need political power because like, look, the strikes have been happening. We had, you know, millions of young people around the world striking, but did anything happen? Like, did anything really materially change? I would argue, no, <laughs> you know, we've maybe like brought it, the issue up more in the agenda, but we, the way we get our agenda across the finish line is enacting policies. And the only way that we are going to solve a crisis as big as the climate crisis and, you know, the linking <laughs> crises that are, have led us here on racial inequality and wealth inequality, especially here in the U S is through the national government. That is the only entity big enough um, to be able to lead that kind of change. And, you know, this election, I think, speaks to like what could be done if people do embrace the electoral realm. You know, we obviously we endorsed uh, Sunrise endorsed Bernie Sanders in the primary for the presidency in 2020. This close to winning that. <laughs> um, but I will never forget the day that Joe Biden released his climate plan. It was the first plan that he released in his primary, like in his race was a, you know, a plan for a multi-trillion dollar investment in communities of color. Those communities have been left behind, who've been, you know, facing pollution and environmental degradation for decades. And we ran, we literally ran in circles because we were like, we knew that whoever was going to be elected president needed to champion our issues. And we used that electoral, you know, our primary process here, which is probably different than many other countries, but we used the levers that we did have to push a race to the top. So we got all of the candidates to, to talk about a Green New Deal, to talk about what could be possible, to talk about, you know, trillions of dollars would have been unthinkable a few years ago. And now what's on the table right now in Congress is a $3.5 trillion bill that would be the largest investment in history in clean energy and good jobs and, um, and justice for communities that have been facing pollution. That is unprecedented. And that is only possible because we joined arms with thousands of young people millions across this country and decided that it was important that we engage in elections and that we go out and vote. And, you know, we can't say for sure that we made the difference, but like you said, the vote difference between Trump winning in some states like Michigan and Pennsylvania was in the tens of thousands. And we talked to millions of young people and, you know, this election, we look at some of the polling, young people came out in historic numbers. Like we, we're actually like not really excited about Biden. And, you know, I think in large part because of Sunrise, we we told a story about like what could be possible. We're not going to get everything. We are not fans of Biden in a lot of ways, but we know that the only way we can get a chance at a livable future is if we get rid of Trump and start having at least a shot at, at a future. So um, I think it's a good case study of what could be possible if if when you engage in politics, knowing that you know, you're not going to win. It's hard. It's messy. There's a reason why people don't engage in the political realm because it's challenging. It's where, you know, the biggest divides in our society are on display. But I think it's, it's really beautiful also if we embrace it, see it as the, the, the tool that it is for change. And I just don't think we have a path to power without it. Garrett, thanks so much for speaking today. Thanks so much, Stefan. Appreciate it. That was a conversation with Garrett Blad from Faith Indiana. Uh, he's the political director there. Faith Indiana is a movement uh, to um, 
as they put it, uh, build racial and economic uh, equity and opportunity across Indiana. It is a coalition organization that I think is doing really important work um, to think about the ways that social movements and organizing within Indiana intersect with broader movements in the U.S., but also can work locally within Indiana to think about challenging power uh, that until now at the state level and also in terms of U.S. senators um, and U.S. presidential elections has been represented by the right wing. Um, I think what's happening in Indiana is sort of mirroring what we see in other parts of the U.S., in Arizona and Georgia particularly, where a new generation of activists um, are working on those intersections of electoral politics and social movements. So I wanted to um, speak with Garrett um, to hear his thoughts, what he's working on. And um, thank you so much, Garrett, for being on Free City Radio. Uh, we broadcast every Wednesday at 11 a.m. on CKUT 90.3 FM. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. Uh, we share this radio hour, hour with the F-Files, which is coming right up at uh, 11.30. Uh, we also uh, share a weekly podcast. You can find that through uh, Apple Podcasts, Free City Radio. That comes out on Tuesdays. This week, we featured an interview with uh, Jameo Brown, uh, who has an ensemble um, which is just awesome. Uh, it's called Jameo Brown Transcendence. Um, so I wanted to play a piece uh, from that ensemble to go out today on um, Free City Radio. Um, thank you so much for tuning in. We'll be back next Wednesday. I'm Stefan Christoph, and keep it locked to People Powered Radio at 90.3 FM. I'll be so glad when oh, well, the sun goes down. When the sun goes down. I'll be so glad when the sun goes down. When the sun goes down. I ain't on that sleeve
CKUT is a messenger Teaching the youth about and culture And tell the masses of the member That's all I heard when I got CKUT is a messenger Teaching the youth about and culture And tell the masses of the member That's all I heard when I got Well, well, 90.3 FM it's CKUT, the cultural radio station. Radio McGill. Blessed love. The messenger. Take it away.